Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the game companies of the future. Today I have Logan Dwight on the podcast, who is the co-founder and CEO of Roll, a tabletop role-playing company that is taking tabletop RPGs online. So in this discussion with Logan, we talk about his founding journey to build role, how tabletop RPGs are transitioning online through the rise of online platforms and his experiences from building role as a startup, building the team, fundraising, and many other topics. But before we go to this discussion, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. At PaulNVC, we provide mobile app and game developers revolving lines of credit, enabling you to borrow up to four times your monthly revenues with simple and transparent pricing. As part of our commitment to the ecosystem, we also provide a suite of free tools and resources to improve financial literacy, helping studios make the most informed decisions when it comes to finance. And that's why we've been named Best Service Provider in this year's Pocket Gamer Mobile Game Awards. Visit pollen.bc to learn more. Hi, Logan. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Good thing. We were introduced a while ago by common friends from who are actually your investors from Colorado. Yeah, they're great. They're a bunch of great investors. So happy for you to have them on board. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're really super happy. Um, the team over at Convoy have been uh, really great allies and like have uh, been the kind of people who basically like believed in what we were doing super quickly. Um, and, uh, and it's been a really fantastic working relationship so far. So, uh, and we're meeting a lot of cool people through them, including people like you. So, uh, definitely I, I can't speak highly enough of it. So for sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. They're great. But Hey, uh, let's go into to some of the topics we wanted to cover today here on the, the podcast. I wanted to first ask you if you could summarize just in a few minutes like an introduction on how you got into gaming and eventually ended up co-founding role i think i'm one of those rare people that uh i have pretty much wanted to do the same thing my whole life um i uh i got into games really young uh i started like not just playing games, but dabbling and designing games at like the age of six uh, with my first uh, role-playing game books, actually my first D&D books. Um, and then at age nine, I got into making video games, uh, made my first video game in Flash, um, you know, did all the art and, and design and code. Um, and pretty much like, again, have never really wavered from wanting to, to do that with my, with my career and with what, the, what I wanted to do in my life. 
Um, and when I was 13 years old, uh, I met Ian, who is my best friend and business partner. Uh, and we've been basically our, our whole friendship has been defined by like things that we can build together. And uh, we pretty much decided from there on out that that one day we wanted to be able to have our own, you know, gaming and technology business together. Um, and so uh, after college, uh, I moved out to the Bay Area. So did he. Um, I got a job uh, in the games industry. Uh, at a company called Kabam uh, in the social games movement. Um, and that was a really great, uh, you know, early experience in my career. Did a lot of different work uh, across games and tech after that, uh, before Ian and I eventually founded our first company, which was a consulting company. Um, and then, uh, you know, about uh, two years ago now, 2019, uh, we decided that we really wanted to start a business of, uh, you know, of a single product and service that we could really dedicate ourselves to. Um, and it ended up being role. And in a lot of ways, it feels like coming home because, uh, as I said before, role-playing games were kind of the first piece of game design I ever dabbled in. Um, and so, uh, in a way, this is a really full circle sort of journey for me. Yeah. You mentioned that you had, uh, another company, another business that you founded before role, which was an agency. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk about the things that you learned valuable skills and lessons learned from doing that company that you still think about today? So we ran our agency um, for about almost five years uh, in San Francisco, and we were really focused on, on bringing uh, our expertise on the intersection of play, storytelling, and technology to a wide range of uh, industries outside of just gaming. And one of the things that I found to be the most important it has really become, uh, I think, a through line for everything I've ever worked on now, uh, including with Roll, is that at the end of the day, um, it's really about the relationships. It's really about the people, um, both internally with, with the team that you have and the things that you can make together and, and, and the people that you're making things with, and then externally as well with the relationships you're building with your partners and your clients. Um, I find that when, when reflecting on the successes of uh, you know, our previous company, uh, all of my most positive memories are not really about specifically the things we built, but again, the people that we built them with or the people that we built them for. Um, I believe that uh, if you're not doing it for the people, uh, then you're not, you know, you're not in it for the right reasons because the mm -hmm. things that you make will, will change and, and sometimes eventually become obsolete. But uh, I think the relationships and the memories you have there, uh, you know, carry on forever. And so, you know, that, that really has become a core foundation of how I approach everything in my career. And I think Ian and I both, my, my co-founder, um, and it certainly has become core to how we run role, right? We think everything about role has been about putting the people first, putting the people we work with first, putting the people that we, uh, you know, uh, serve first, like, you know, our customers, our players, um, and, you know, really making sure that uh, the experience of creating role is really about really positive and impactful relationships through, through play, through creativity, through storytelling. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's really good, really good stuff. Uh, so that people would know what Role does, can you introduce it to the audience, the company? Role is an online platform for the play and creation of uh, role playing games, um, and rooted really specifically in the tradition of tabletop role playing games. So the easiest way to explain it would be like Dungeons and Dragons, but on the internet. Um, we actually consider this to be a broader emergent category than just taking tabletop games and bringing them online. We actually, we, we've taken a call in this category 
online narrative play. Um, because even before Roll, uh, with the explosion of online social video, uh, there has been a huge spike in the global growth of role-playing games uh, because they are kind of the perfect format to be played online. And with that, uh, the diversity of content has also exploded. And so what we try to do at Roll is rather than try to build one set of tools that's like, oh, this is a set of tools that is just really great for playing D&D, but on the internet, we, you know, whatnot. We instead try to build tools that are uh, inherently uh, game agnostic and intuitive and easy to, to get into and accessible that empower people to very quickly and, uh, and effectively jump into a really good, strong social uh, environment for play. Uh, so they can play whatever they would like, and then also provide people with uh, easy code-free creation tools to create the content for their games so that they can play whatever they like, customize whatever they'd like. Um, so you can kind of think of us as a little bit of a fusion between like Zoom and Squarespace, but for tabletop role-playing games on the internet. Nice. Nice. That's really cool. Like what stage of sort of traction are you with the platform now and if you think about the competitive landscape for online Dungeons and Dragons, is like what does it look like? So we are still in beta. We're in early access. Um, we went into early access in fall of last year, um, and so we've been continually working on our kind of our core, what we call playing creation loop. Um, our core player base that we have is highly engaged, which uh, has been really incredibly rewarding for us because you know we have people who play regularly, like the average play session on roll is like four to five hours. Um, and we have people who play uh, every week who sometimes go as high as 12 hour sessions, which is, it just, just mind blowing to me. Um, and, but, but again, I think it speaks to the power of, uh, of this type of social experience and how, and how engaging it can be. Um, but you know, when, when we look at what we do compared to what other products in the marketplace do, because there are, there are a lot of other really great services out there. Um, you know, there's, there's services like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, um, and there's new services like Multiverse and whatnot. Um, and I think what, uh, what makes us different is that we really try to take a very, a very different stance and approach into like how we've come at our product. I think, um, a lot of the other, other services in the market, uh, some of which are quite large, like there are, you know, some of these platforms like, you know, have been around for, for many years now and have really large audiences. Um, I think what they've done is they, they've really effectively um, begun to master the idea of like simulating uh, a tabletop. Uh, there's this kind of a category of product called a virtual tabletop. Um, and oftentimes what this is, is like complex tactical maps and, you know, the, the experience of taking what would normally be done with like miniatures and like doing it in a virtual environment. Um, and so when we look at what they do, we say, you know, we don't want to just try to chase that we want, we, you know, we want to try to, to, to fulfill, I think something a little bit different. And so when we asked ourselves again, like, what is the thing that we consider to be core to every role-playing experience, we kept coming back to, as I said before, this idea of the people and the idea that it is an inherently social experience, because we try to think about like, what is the, the the one common thread that every role-playing game experience has, which is if you're, if you're getting on your computer, getting on your, your tablet, you're getting on your devices uh, and you're looking to play like a, a role-playing game instead of a video game, right? You're doing that because there's something specific to a role-playing game that a video game can't provide you. And our belief is that uh, the role-playing specific experience is this 
face-to-face human interaction where you can see the reactions of other real people across the table and you're telling a story together, you're having a really genuine, intimate, non-anonymous social experience, uh, which is very different than playing like a multiplayer video game. And so again, like for us with the type of software that we're building and the type of services we build, we said, you know, let's not try to chase what everybody else is doing because they're already really good at that stuff. Let's try to build tools that can be used uh, either separately or, or sometimes even in conjunction. Um, that are more focused on video and social experiences. And then second to that, or, or in addition to that, I wouldn't say second necessarily because they're, they're on par priorities. Uh, we also really believe that role-playing games are fundamentally the most accessible form of game design because the only thing you need to know how to do is write. You know, Unlike other forms of game design, uh, obviously as somebody who grew up making games myself, there's a lot of technical skills that many types of games require you to learn in order to get into designing them. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so when we looked at that, we said, we need to provide people with a suite of tools that don't require them to learn any technical skills or minimal technical skills at at most so that they can create online in a native way uh, and bring that into their social experience. So the other big thing that we really focused on with Roll is, like I said, it's kind of like Squarespace of role-playing games. Like it's it's essentially like a drag and drop WYSIWYG editor um, that allows people to create gameplay uh, experiences for any role-playing game they want. They can create for their favorite game. They can create their own stuff, their own homebrew content. Designers can use it uh, for their for their own games uh, because we really want to make sure that uh, the average person has very rapid access to the act of creation, which we believe is like such a strong joy of the medium. And then also, again, like that really, really interpersonal social experience. And I think that's what makes role like a, a very different type of product from uh from what else you see on the market mm, right right yeah I, I think like since we're going pretty deep here uh, might make sense to to share sort of with the audience like who might not yet know everything mm-hmm. we're ta- trying to explain here like mm-hmm. what is what are like you know tabletop role-playing games what are they actually and then uh can you talk about the players what kind of demographics uh how often do they play these games and like how long are the sessions and, and stuff like that? Um, role-playing games as they exist today, uh, this current iteration of the medium um, has been around since like the 1970s. Um, you know, the most popular of which is Dungeons and Dragons. Like everybody, uh, that's probably the most familiar household name. Um, but of course, Dungeons and Dragons is just one of like thousands and thousands of games that are out there. Um, the market is always rapidly expanding. But the way that I like to explain it is, Role-playing games really are just our culture's latest evolution of like the classic campfire story. Really what they are is they are a tool to facilitate social storytelling, uh, you know, in, in person with people. And what's really great about role-playing games is they are a collaborative storytelling experience. So whether it is D&D or something else, what these games tend to provide is um, a foundation of, of lore, of story to get you inspired and then guiding rules to help people collaborate together and tell the story in a way where no one person really has total reins over what's happening, right? There is, there is a little bit of uh, the unexpected. There is a little bit of structure. Um, it makes it easier for the game to be both collaborative and, again, like surprising. And uh, what we find is that, you know, when people get into playing these games, they tend to be uh, very, very sticky because the experience of kind of this total uh, open-ended creation with with other real people, uh, once you once you try it, is incredibly empowering. And so, the average person, once they start playing role-playing games, 
uh, groups tend to meet at least once a week. Um, they tend to play for anywhere from two to five hours. Um, and like I said, on our platform, we've seen people play for upwards of 12 hours, uh, like every week, which is pretty insane. Um, I know I personally, like I've been playing role-playing games my whole life. I, uh, I have been part of role-playing sessions that last all weekend. Like you have people get together on like a Friday night, you play through the evening, you play all day Saturday, and then like you, you finish on Sunday and everybody goes home, you know, like, so it, it's kind of all over the place, but, uh, the, the thing that I think is the common thread is, again, like they're extremely high engagement uh, game experiences because, again, like this act of creating the story and experiencing it together with other people is really empowering. And so when people get into it, they tend to play with a certain amount of frequency and uh, and high playtime. Right, right. Yeah, that's cool. Like, like, just like if you can sort of like crystallize, why do you think people enjoy tabletop RPG as much as they do? Well, I think it's really, there's, it's just those two things. It's one, the total freeform creativity, even within the rules. Uh, there's a phrase in role-playing games called rulings over rules, uh, which is something that uh, I, I really like that, that phrase. Uh, essentially what that means is the rules are just a suggestion. You can throw them out. You can change them. You can do whatever you want. Like they're not, it's not a video game. So when a rule uh, tells you that the game is supposed to go a certain way and you and your group don't want it to go that way, you can just ignore it because it's just something written down on a piece of paper, right? Or in the case of an online game, it's just something written down on a website. And so um, what I think is great about role-playing games is again, that, that free form creativity for people, right? It is truly what you and your group imagine it to be. You are creating an entire world together. Uh, and there's actually been like a lot of really fascinating studies that show that uh, this act of doing it live through a social experience uh, tends to trigger like the memory center of the brain. Uh, so you're actually forming memories of things you've never really done uh, mm -hmm. that are imagined with real people. Uh, and, and that again, that can be very empowering because it can be a fantasy of whatever you, whatever you want. Your character can be whoever you want. The place, the world that you're going to can be whatever you want. Uh, and then second, uh, which I've kind of been touching on uh, along the way is, uh, is that that real powerful, intimate human experience. I believe that if you if you were to ever take that away, the power of a role-playing game just starts to disintegrate. Um, yeah. There are, of course, like, you know, solo role-playing games, but those tend to be a lot more niche because uh, at the end of the day, like what's really amazing is this experience of like, we're doing it with other people. Like you're laughing together, you're creating together, you're going through this like emotional experience together. It is very different from a multiplayer video game uh you know even as much as i like playing video games uh there is a very distinct difference between like getting online and like shouting at my buddies as we are all squatted up on some you know match of like halo or Fortnite or something versus like getting on uh, either in person around a table or now in the case of online play on video and seeing their faces and laughing together and like swapping stories and it it, it becomes as we like to say the people are the game like everything else is just up there to facilitate, but the people are the game. Um, it's not uncommon for people to become, if they weren't already, very close friends with their regular play group. Like this is a, a, a bonding experience like no other. And I think that's what makes it so sticky once people start getting into it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Tabletop RPGs is totally like a different experience from any other gaming uh, format that you can have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they're thinking about the, the platform and the the whole idea of building something like this uh what was the aha moment 
for you and your co-founder like? <laughs> yeah, so I actually have a, a funny story about that one. Um, so Ian and I actually built the first version of Roll as a mobile app for iOS back in 2015. And it was purely a personal project. It was just, we were, we were running our, our previous business, our agency business. And we were, you know, in a creative space where we were like, you know, like we just, we really want to make like a, like a small project that, uh, that tackles something that has been on our mind for years. Um, I had actually originally done it as a napkin sketch, like in college, we were like chatting about it one day on the phone. And the idea was that role-playing games are so amazing and so powerful, but there's kind of this perceived barrier to entry that stops a lot of people from playing. And our thought was, what if we made like a mobile app that was just really, really simple, really abstracted that you could pick up and play and learn immediately. And then you could just play role-playing games with your friends. Like you could, you could, everybody could have it on their lunch break or whatever. So we took a few months of our, you know, free time and we built this app and we, you know, launched it on the app store and never really thought about it again because it wasn't really meant to be at the time. Uh, a business venture. Like we were, we were focused on our other business. Uh, and so this is more of a personal project. We would play with our friends, whatever. Uh, and so we were very proud of it. Uh, but again, like we just weren't thinking about it. And then, uh, you know, many years later, we had decided to spin the agency down. Uh, you know, we really felt like in the long term, our heart was more in like trying to build a single service, a single product, a single thing that we could invest our, our learnings in. Um, and we wanted to do something that was more for like a wider, you know, audience of players. And so we were sitting down and looking at like what we had done in the past. And we we're like, well, what, like, what is there? Like, where can we provide value? What, what's the thing that we can do that's interesting and unique for people? Um, and we were having lunch with a friend and one of our friends was like, Hey, uh, what's this role thing that you guys did? Like, what, what is this? He's like going through our website. And we're like, oh, it's this like uh, D and D thing on your phone, like you, you know, you you. I, I didn't think he would be interested in it to be honest, because like it wasn't it wasn't really his thing. And he goes, oh no, this is really interesting. He's like, tell me more. So we're explaining it to him, and he's like, do you guys have any idea, um, like what your app store numbers were on that on that app? And we we're like, no, we don't really check. Like we just we just put it out there. We didn't we didn't even yeah. market it. No big deal. And so we we're like, well, let's let's look. So we had our laptops with us because of course it was like a work lunch. So. We go on our laptops and we pull up our app store numbers and we found out that, you know, the app at that time had been out for like three and a half, four years. Um, we had a hundred thousand people using it. We had all these people um, like actively using it. And we had all of these great reviews and we were like, we had set up an email account for it that we had kind of stopped checking. We had all these great emails. We had people telling us that like, oh, I use this in my classroom with my kids or like, oh, people be like, I use this on my lunch break with my friends from work or, oh, I, this is how I got my mom into role-playing games with me. Like I had all this awesome stuff. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> like it worked. Like this was, and it was all organic. It was all word of mouth. And so we're looking at that and we're totally blown away. And our buddy, we're so much for that. He goes, there it is. He's like, that's, that's the thing. And he's like, do that. Like, that's, this is really, really cool. So we started, you know, looking again at the role-playing market. And, uh, and obviously we were both already big aficionados. We were like, really, we love to watch like streaming shows like Critical Role and Dimension 20 and things like that. And we keep playing role-playing games. So it wasn't that far of a leap. And the more we looked at the actual data, we were like, oh my God, like this is huge right now. Like the role-playing market is at the beginning of this insane spike. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about where technology has taken us. So we said, okay, let's comb through all of the feedback we've gotten, all of our reviews, all of our emails, and let's go back to the drawing board and start from scratch and say, all right, if role is going to be a business, let's not make it like a super simple mobile app. Let's make it 
a native web experience that can really be video centric and people centric and can address a lot of the questions that people had. And then let's expand it into a global service that everybody can use to, to bring role-playing to everyone. Um, and so that's, that's really where, where role, uh, came about. And, uh, and like I said, it, it feels like coming home. Cause it's like, this is something that we were already passionate about. We already had a deep love of, uh, and, and now we find ourselves doing it, uh, as a business. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome story. Yeah. Like, why do you think now in 2021 is the right time for a role? Uh, like if even thinking about tabletop RPGs, you know, working as a, digital platform like Mm -hmm. do you have thoughts there you know i think something that i hear a lot is people saying oh you know well with with the pandemic with covid like it's it makes a lot of sense that people are going online to play their games And, and 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 that is true to a certain extent but actually what we've really observed is that this this movement to to play role playing games online really has had been happening before we we were all, you know, dealing with the, the horrors of a global pandemic. Um, and, you know, the, the real positive uh, thing about, you know, role-playing games is again, like, because they are such an incredible, powerful people-centric experience, they really like translate incredibly well to video. And so mm-hmm. something that uh, we say a lot internally at Roll, and, and it's a, a big driving belief uh, of ours is that with every new uh, social paradigm that comes through in technology, especially like a mass social paradigm with every new thing that we adopt as a culture, uh, we will always, people will always look for a way to play because play is one of the fundamental human languages. It translates across all cultures, all age groups. It is, it is one of the things that all human beings try to do. It is how we interact, it is how we learn, it is how we create. Um, and so if you look at like previous rises of other types of technology, right? You look at the social gaming movement from a decade ago, which is obviously still a strong force. Like that, that rose because we had social media and we had mobile phones and we had all these things and people were looking for a way to play that grafted to the way they were socializing. Now we live in a world where even pre-pandemic video has become the dominant social experience on the internet, whether it's synchronous video over something like Zoom or FaceTime or Discord or whatever, um, or asynchronous video through things like Twitch or YouTube or whatnot, where you're, you know, you're, you're kind of consuming video from somebody else. Um, this is, this is how we socialize now. Uh, and it's, and it's a global phenomenon. And when you think about, well, then how do you play using these tools? Role-playing games are kind of one of those things where it's like the answer was right there. It was right under our noses the whole time. Um, and everything old is new again, as they say. And so it makes perfect sense because again, since they are just this fundamentally uh, free form experience that are really meant to have people at the center of the experience, um, they, are, they are like games as a conversation is kind of another way to think about it. And so they make perfect sense for this type of technology that we have today. And we have seen that. We've seen this explosive rise of role-playing games. Again, it was happening even before we were doing with role. Um, you can see it in the type of media and content that gets produced. Like I mentioned, like Critical Role and Dimension 20, these shows pull like millions of viewers. Like this is like big stuff people consume. Um, and then also like you look at like the the players online. Like we, we were you know, looking at the market even a couple of years ago and, and just a couple of years ago, when we we're looking at it. We, you know, rough estimates are that there were at least 80 million active people playing role-playing games globally. Um, and that has also caused the market to rapidly diversify. You know, there's a stereotype out there that everybody just plays D&D. And while like D&D is like 
huge and absolutely one of, if not the biggest role-playing game, uh, it's definitely the biggest role-playing game. Um, mm. What's really amazing is as it's gone global, the audience has really expanded because uh, again, since it is such a fundamentally uh, like social and conversational experience, um, everyone tends to make it their own um, for their group, for their, for their friends. And so what we're seeing is there really isn't one type of demographic for role-playing games anymore. Like we have people of all age ranges of all backgrounds, uh, you know, it, it crosses all gender divides, it crosses all cultural backgrounds, all racial backgrounds. Um, and I think to us, that makes a lot of sense because the other nice thing about role-playing games and the stories that you can tell is you can tell the stories that make, that, that mean, mean something to you. And so what we're also seeing, which has been really amazing and, uh, and, and makes me very happy to serve uh, this community is a lot of people who don't see themselves represented in other forms of media have really taken strongly to role-playing games as their kind of primary form of social entertainment because they can tell the stories that they see themselves in, that they want to see themselves in. They can get together with friends that they trust and respect, and they can create entire worlds together that are for them. And that has been awesome to see. Like there is just such an incredible diverse range of storytelling and game content out there in the world now and always growing. Uh, I think the role-playing game market today is, again, the most diverse it's ever been. And we're only at the very beginning of that. Like I think in five years from now, it's going to look even more significantly different. Um, and yeah. so I think, I think that's really cool. It's really empowering. It is, it is. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the role of the game master, which is sort of like a, a, a very critical component for any tabletop RPG game. Like, how do you see the game master sort of component evolving as you go online with tabletop RPGs in the next five years? So we are, we are laser focused on this right now. This is kind of like our big challenge, our next big challenge that we're trying to surmount at Roll. Um, and we're not the only ones. Like I think the whole industry is is laser focused on this. Um, it is, I would say, it is probably the industry's biggest problem. Um, and it's not um, it's not that game mastering itself is a problem. It's it's a huge, like you said, kind of core component to the experience for a lot of games. But it has an extremely high learning curve. Uh, getting somebody to a place where they're comfortable running a game as a game master, essentially, like as the person who kind of is like the referee for the story um, can be really challenging. And, you know, there are, as I mentioned, like the, like as the medium has gotten more diverse, there are games now that are what's called GMless, like no game master, where the, the act of refereeing the game and running the story is shared between the players. Um, but those games still tend to be um, like the less, uh, less popular category. Um, and so what we're really trying to focus on, and I, I think a lot of people in the industry are focusing on is how do you use digital tools to help take the burden off of a new game master or even an experienced game master in a way where um, they don't have to do as much preparation, they don't have to do as much, uh, you know, learning. Uh, and also when they're stuck in a moment when they feel like they need to improvise uh, and they're and they're hitting a road bump, like, can we serve them information that helps get them there, that helps get them over to the next to the next stage of the story. Um, and one of the things that I think uh, we haven't really seen enough of yet, because I think the industry is only just really investing in this problem now, is taking things that technology and video games have already mastered, which is essentially the onboarding experience, right? The idea of like 
getting somebody into a new complex game experience, right? Video games have gotten very good at this. Taking that and doing the same thing for game masters, doing something that would be very hard to do in a physical product. Like I think when we look at challenges like this one, we we ask ourselves like, this is, or, or is this one of those things where digital provides space to innovate in a way that isn't something you could just do physically? And I think, and I think it is, which is again, like we're working on it. And I think a lot of other people are too, which is software experiences that actually very smoothly and in a fun way, like in a way that feels creative, onboard somebody into game mastering. Because our goal with mm-hmm. Roll would be that you log on to Roll with a group of friends and let's say that every single one of you has never played a role-playing game before. There's no experienced player in your group. And you're all like, all right, well, what do we do? We want to make it so that as quickly as possible, you all know what you're doing. And whoever's going to be the game master feels like, oh yeah, I got this. Like I'm figuring it out. The game, like the app is, is teaching me the systems and it's teaching me in a creative way. And I'm doing it with my group of friends. Um, I don't have to do any preparation uh, because game mastering, just like any other part of role-playing once you've done it a few times and you start to get comfortable, it is so incredibly empowering because uh, you you really feel like you're facilitating this act of pure creation and this act of, of deep social creation with, with friends. And so we just want to get people over that initial hump uh, because once we do, our belief is that with the explosive growth industry is going through already, like we're going to see an exponential increase in industry growth once we get over this particular thing, because then once more people get comfortable doing it and we develop a common language as an industry around what game mastering is, um, I think we can then, you know, really bring this to everyone as, as we like to say. Yeah. Like think about the, the numbers of worldwide tabletop gamers, like there's, most likely a lot of room for growth there. Like even mm-hmm. though tabletop RPGs have been around for several decades, like that thinking about the, the barriers for entry for new players and this kind of perception of maybe it's it's too hard to learn to too hardcore. Like, do you have approaches to, to solving this problem? One of the things that I I find is that you know there is this perception that role-playing games are really hard to learn. And in practice, when you actually start playing them, they're very intuitive. And so it's more of like an emotional hesitation. Like it's one of those things where it's like, when you look at it from the outside, you go, oh yeah, that seems that seems like a lot. And when you actually play, you're like, oh, it's actually not. Like, this is great. This is super delightful. Um, and again, like it's very sticky once you start. So our whole thing is just get you over that first emotional barrier. And so the way you do that is again, like with a really good, smooth onboarding software experience, something that basically says like, Hey, welcome. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to read this 500 page rule book cover to cover. You don't need to know all these things. You just need to understand some basic principles. And we're going to just, then we're going to smoothly provide you with a software experience that lets you exercise those principles and practice them. Um, and you're going to find that the act of, of storytelling is really, uh, is really intuitive and, and delightful. Um, and also like there's a whole wide range of games out there, some of which are much less complex rules wise that you can introduce people to first to help get their feet wet, you know, kind of get this idea of like, okay, like you don't need, you know, 12 different stats and a bunch of different things. Like you can, you can kind of work your way up to that type of game if you want to, but like, let's start you with something simple. Um, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of that has not really been done very well yet. And so we're trying to focus on that here at Roll because again, like our whole belief is like trying to bring it to everyone. Um, and so uh, again, I see it as more of like an emotional barrier. Uh, the one thing that I find uh, I've observed the most, uh, even with experienced players, right? Uh, is that it's not 
the rules that are the hard thing for people to get over. Um, I find that once people get into that, they, they can, they can learn it. They can process it over time. The thing that I think a lot of people don't expect to be the biggest challenge is the improv. Cause it is, there's a lot of heavy duty, uh, improv, like in like almost like a theater sort of sense. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, they like to say like, again, classic theater improv, it's a lot of yes. And it's a lot of like, Oh, this happens. And then this happens. And then players have to get comfortable players and game masters have to get comfortable jumping in and just coming up with things off the top of their head. And for a lot of people that can feel like a lot of social pressure and it can be challenging. And so one of the things that we're actively working on now is can you build a software experience that assists with the act of improvisation when somebody feels stuck so that they feel like they have like a creative safety net, right? So if it's like, if all of a sudden the spotlight's on them and they're like, uh, I don't know what to do, like, can we serve them? some very easy to digest information that kind of nudges them in a certain direction. Like, well, what if you tried this? What if you said this? What if you did this? Like um, little ways to get their brain thinking in that way. So that over time it becomes like a reflex and then you just get really good at the improvisation. Um, because I actually think that that is the hardest thing for anyone to learn with a role-playing game. And that is something that is unique to role-playing games that other forms of gaming don't really require of you. You don't have to like do that as much in like a video game or other types of tabletop games. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, can you comment a bit on this kind of like, because you're basically transitioning something that's always been offline uh, as, a, as, a, as a form of gameplay to, to having an online experience? Like, are there some trade, trade-offs there that you think, or will the transition be sort of like smooth and you won't lose anything that happens in the real world? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think... One of the things that's nice is this this transition was already happening before us. Like we didn't really we didn't start this. And um, again, like the most powerful part of it is is the people. And so what we are very cautious of with the software we build is to never build anything that gets in the way of you having a really great face-to-face conversation with people. Like if you look at our play experience, like the video is front and center. It is, you know, high quality, stable, high resolution video. Uh, and, and, and our way to get to play is, is you know, relatively quick. Uh, we, we want people to get into the active play as, as quickly as possible. I think that the areas where the experience can start to break down is when you add too many gameplay components on top of the social experience to the point where people stop focusing on talking to each other and looking at each other and having that. And they start focusing too much on quote unquote, the board, the, the, the pieces, the, the stuff they're moving around. And when you get really, really down that road and you're no longer focusing on, on the, the socialization, our attitude is what are you then doing that you can't just do in a video game? Like, what are you doing there that you, that you couldn't do playing like, you know, a video game with friends? Like why, why at, at that point, why not just go play like your favorite strategy game or your favorite, you know, uh, MMO or, or, or something like that. And so to preserve the magic of role-playing games, you have to preserve and, and sanctify the people because the people are the game. Uh, yeah. And I think that video has come such a, such a long way that actually I found you know, over, over the years now of playing that playing online doesn't really feel like I'm taking that like really any step backwards compared to playing in person. Of course, I still enjoy mm-hmm. playing in person. Like when, when I can, when I get together with friends and play around a physical table, you, we, we do that. But 
Um, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing something when I play online. And all this has done is it's allowed me to do it more frequently, right? It's allowed everybody to do it more frequently because you can just you can just jump online for your you know nightly or weekly sessions with with people. Um, and, but like I said, because people are the kind of most important core thing of the experience, we have to make sure that everything we add and everything we layer on for uh, for a play experience never gets in the way of that. And so we really strive to try to make that a core principle of our platform. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, I, I wanted to talk to you about your startup experiences a bit more, uh, going into kind of like what you've been doing so far with Roll and the previous company. But like as a founder, you you must have you know learned a lot of stuff along the way. But like, what are the hard lessons that you've learned from being a founder? <laughs> sure, um, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think. Uh, the most important thing that I've learned is is relationships. Uh, I think this was true with the previous business that we were running. Uh, it's just as true now. It doesn't matter whether you're doing you know uh, a venture venture scale technology business or whether you're doing an agency business or whether you're you know running your local game store or whether you're you know a, a solo shop. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, at the end of the day, relationships really matter the most. And uh, I have tried very hard in in, uh, in in my career to build a principle of surround yourself with good people, surround yourself with people you respect uh, and who and who you know respect you, and then do everything you can to do right by them. That's all that matters. Uh, I find that throughout my life, the areas where I've had the most trouble and the most friction and faced the greatest challenges have been when we've lost sight of that. And we thought that something else was more important, whether it was, oh, like the, this project has become so, so momentous or this deadline has become so, so intense that we have to just like throw everything to the wind and work on this only, or, or, and, and we neglect the, the relationship that we're having. We're neglecting to communicate. We're neglecting our, our time and our energy. We're neglecting our resources. Um, at the end of the day, if you focus too much on preserving things for yourself, uh, your relationships start to fatigue. But the flip side of that, if you focus on your relationships and you focus on doing right by those relationships, uh, your community, both professionally and you know socially, will take care of you. Like you, like if if we all focus on that for each other, we will take care of each other. Um, and this translates not just to the people that you work with internally on your team and your business partners. Like those those two things are very much true. Like I uh, I am very particular about. Uh, the people that we that we work with, uh, and and I and I try to be as open and as honest as possible with everyone I work with, so that we can build a relationship of respect and trust, and we can try to always be doing right by each other, always. Um, hmm. But it also carries over to the customers. And uh, another thing that we say a lot, uh, especially on like the product and services side of our business, is we say make things with your customer, not for your customer, and there is a difference. Because when you're making things with your customer, that comes from a foundational principle of mutual trust and respect. You respect that they know what they're talking about and you want them to respect you and you want them to respect that you know what you're doing and that it's all done in good faith. Uh, making things for your customer, I believe, leaves too much room for ego, for a lack of trust, for uh, this idea that you are somehow smarter than the people who are uh, using you know, your services. Hmm. And the reality is like, I think that when that happens, uh, it, it leaves too much room for people to no longer be trying to do right by each other. Uh, it, it leaves room for, for I think, miscommunication and misperception. And so, again, like 
uh, we try to keep that as like our North star for everything we do. It's like, we are just trying to do this together and we are just trying to do right by everyone uh, and spend as much of our energy as we possibly can focus on just doing that. Um, mm-hmm. And the rest will, the rest will come around as it will. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the whole notion of tr- building trust around your companies. So such a big deal, like even in the hard times, like just, you know, falling back to, to you know, how do we build trust? uh like with the community with our customers so awesome yeah totally agree with that like thinking about your team and how you allocate time for your team like do you do a lot of one-on-ones do you have like a approach for coaching and developing team members we're a fully remote business uh now and probably forever um that's the core principle that we always wanted to maintain even before the pandemic so the pandemic has kind of accelerated that um and so there are actually a lot of things that we try to do to uh ensure and maintain a strong sense of uh of team connection and growth so like one of them is like we always start our day every day with like a video chat with the team. So everybody gets FaceTime with each other. Uh, and we do like our normal logistical things, like we do stand up and all that stuff, but we also leave room in that morning conversation to just talk and just, you know, check in on how are people doing? Like, what are we passionate about? What are we thinking about today? And there is an incredible number of insights that tend to come out of that conversation every week. Uh, we, we are able to kind of get in sync and, and vet our ideas and learn from one another very rapidly. Um, we do also do like one-on-one conversations about once a month. Um, you know, I'll, I'll schedule one-on-one time with all of our core team members. So will Ian, my co-founder. Um, we also strongly encourage our core team members to schedule one-on-ones with each other, even if it's like cross-departmental and whatnot. I mean, we're still like a relatively small team. Like we're still an earlier startup. So in my mind is at this scale, like we should have no excuse for everyone like knowing each other. Like everyone should, everyone should have a relationship with everyone. Um, and the other thing is that we have really intentionally tried to create a process. And I think it's been successful so far where no one makes decisions in isolation. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's outside of your core domain of like the things that you work on a day to day. We try to make it so that everybody has honesty and transparency into every decision we make as a team, whether it's a decision we make about engineering or a decision we make about game content or a decision we make about our services or our customers or our messaging. Uh, we always try to get together as a team and we talk things through. And I think that it can be easy to assume that this level of talking and conversation would somehow slow us down, would create inefficiency because like, if you're always talking, then like, how are you working? But I found actually it's the opposite of true because we have gotten to a place where uh, we can communicate so rapidly. We can communicate over asynchronously over things like Slack, or we can communicate on video calls and whatnot. Um, where we can get to the point of a thing that we're trying to discuss very quickly. So we don't actually waste that much time talking. Um, we just we just get the answers we need fast. Um, I would say that no one on the team has ever gone longer than 24 hours without posing some update or question about something they're working on to the rest of the team. Like we're always, everyone always knows what everybody's thinking about. And because of that, we get to consensus really quickly and we have shared expertise. So if somebody has to step away for, you know, an emergency or vacation or whatever, the whole team has a total understanding and consensus of their work. And we can just keep moving at a very aggressive pace. And so we've been able to stay very fast with our development and our roadmap, and we can make really confident decisions. And everyone feels like they were part of those decisions, which is really important. 
Um, again, like I think that that dovetails back to that idea of surround yourself with people you respect and then do right by them. Right. It's mm-hmm. not about, you know, like as, as founders, like it's not about like Ian and I sitting at the top and dictating to everybody, like what, what are we going to work on? What are we going to do? Here's what this is. It's really about the team coming together and bringing their expertise together and trying to form consensus. So that way we can make the best decision. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I really love that sort of in, intentional, like building that intentional culture that you guys are doing. So really awesome uh you just closed your seed round so uh what advice would you have for the other gaming founders here in the podcast audience on how to kick off a seed round manage the process and eventually actually close around i would say two things that uh that i learned in the process of raising this round so one uh is that don't worry about the timing don't worry about the money. Like, don't worry about a, a target number and 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 your timing, because that stuff is arbitrary. Um, it might feel like it's not arbitrary. It might feel like it's the most important thing in the whole world, but it's arbitrary. Um, and if you are in a place where you're just building something that you feel is really good and you're really passionate about, you will eventually meet the right people, and they will come to the table with uh, an offer that is like on their side, that is really good. And, and you'll come to the table with an offer on your side that is really good. And you'll be able to come together very quickly. Um, I find that when it's wrong, like when you're talking to the wrong people and they don't get your vision or uh, there's too much friction or your timing is off because maybe you have more work to do or they're just not um, the stage of investor for the stage of your company. When that happens, conversations can drag. And very, it's very rare to get an outright no super quickly. People are professionally quite uh, polite and for the most part. And so what will happen is conversations will just, just continue. And when you feel that, that sluggishness and that friction, that means you're, you're not, you're not really there. You're not really synchronized with that person because when it's right, it happens very fast. Every single investment relationship we've ever had uh, when raising money before a seed round, like because we raised some like pre-seed money, um, and then now like raising for a seed round, every relationship has been uh, the people that have invested in us have come together very quickly. We we would meet them, and then we would very rapidly uh, get into sync. And you can just tell, you just know it. It's a feeling. You'll be in a conversation, and you'll be like, oh, this is going really well. Like these people really get it. We we're we're really like vibing with these people. Like this is amazing. Um, and you'll tend to get a, you tend to get a, Hey, yes, I'm interested really fast. Um, and when that happens again, like the timing will work itself out. The numbers will work themselves out. Uh, you know, our, our round came out at significantly different numbers than we had thought it was going to higher numbers than we had thought it was going to, um, because we had found the right partners who were really excited about what we do. And, and they also, again, like talking about that whole, like, you know, build relationships of trust and, and do right by people, they brought their own expertise to the table. So, uh, we trusted them in the, in those conversations of like, they would look at what we're doing and they'd say, Hey, you know, you might actually need a little bit more money for this thing, or you might, you know, you might want to make sure that you anticipate this thing coming in six months. Like there's things mm-hmm. that they, that they can look at cause they've seen it in other companies and they can say, Hey, like, we're not just here to invest money and in you We're here to help you build a business. Right. And so, um, there's a lot of that, that, that I think, uh, is really important to keep in mind. Uh, and at the end of the day, I say like, just focus on the relationships, focus on the work. Keep doing the things that you're really passionate about and keep building your relationships. And you would be surprised if 
if you're, if you're focusing on that correctly, you'd be surprised how many doors open that are right in front of you. Like it could be through friends. It could be through advisors. It could be through other professional networks. It could be through people who just stumble onto your work uh, from an outside party. Um, but if you're, if you're too focused on just specific timing and specific numbers, you're going to lose sight of why you're really doing this in the first place. And you're going to miss the opportunities that are right in front of you. And, and I think that, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge to overcome when you're fundraising is kind of getting out of your head and just focusing on the people. Yeah. Really good words. Yeah. Hopefully the, the founders will pick up some of these lessons. Uh, Hey, before we go to the final questions here, I wanted to ask you if you have a topic in gaming that you often think about, but isn't, you know, covered enough in discussions or in the media. I think for me, the biggest thing that I think about all the time uh, is anonymity and representation in gaming. Um, I and I know that this topic is covered in the media, uh, you know, with some amount of frequency, but uh, I still think that it's important to put a strong focus on because my attitude is I, you know, I've worked in games and technology for my entire career for well over a decade, and I've seen how this stuff is done from the inside and. Oftentimes, when I look at uh, the tools we have to, you know, stop, for example, harassment, um, you know, again on the internet, uh, and also the tools we have to promote more diversity in gaming, uh, I think we're not moving fast enough. And when I hear the excuses as to why, you know, why we're not doing it, like why X Y Z company can't do this, why we can't do that, to me they ring as exactly that. They ring as excuses. Um, they ring as like we just don't want to do the work right now. Like, and people tend to describe this as a harder problem than it really is. And I mean, it's not that it's not a hard problem, but like everything is a hard problem and we, we, we have to pick and choose our battles. And um, I think that this is a battle that we need to be putting a lot more energy into because what ends up happening is due to the fundamental anonymity of most online social tools and most online gaming, And the lack of diverse representation in both the creation of games and technology, and then also in the co content itself, we end up having a breeding ground for abuse and harassment. And it drives incredibly wide, uh, uh, incredibly high numbers of creative people away from both playing and creating games. And we're missing out on the opportunity to do those things with, with those people to, to do amazing things together and to form like a more vibrant and diverse community is one of the reasons why I'm incredibly happy to be working in role-playing games because role-playing games, like, sure, like we still have those problems too, because it's still software. It's still people on the internet, but, and we are working towards dealing with that, but one, they're not anonymous, like to play a role-playing game, like you're looking at people in the face and you are having conversation. And two, because of the style of play and because of the, the, the way the medium has expanded, like they can be a lot more representative, you know, right? There is, there is a much more diverse audience um, uh, playing these games who have, again, like, as I mentioned earlier, kind of found a home here where they maybe couldn't have found a home in other, other mediums of gaming and entertainment. And I think that this is going to become very sacred and important to those people. Uh, because once you find a place where you can be safe and you can play the types of uh, experiences that matter to you and see yourself represented and, and, and feel like you can engage with people without fear of reprisal, uh, then, you, then you're going to make that your home for, for gaming. Um, and so I think to me, like that's, that is our industry's biggest problem. It has been, it has been the industry's biggest problem for my entire life. I mean, it's been the mm -hmm. biggest problem since the first time video games went on the internet. 
Um, and I think that we can and should be doing a lot better. Uh, and there's really no excuse for why we're not. Um, and so I think about that a lot. And I, and I think that that absolutely dovetails into the way that we approach uh, what we do at Roll. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. Um, hey, Logan, I have some final questions for you here. Like, what is your favorite book and why? Uh, my favorite book is Dune. Uh, it's, it's a no-brainer uh, for me. Uh, I have always, always loved Dune. I think I read Dune for the first time when I was like nine, 10 years old, something like that. Um, and I reread it every five or six years or so. Uh, I, I've reread it many points in my life. And every time I feel like I learned something new, um, I, I really love science fiction. And Dune to me sits at this great intersection of, it is about, you know, the, the, the aspirational side of science fiction and it is about human potential and it is about, you know, uh, the future of, of humanity in a way that is very interesting, but it is also while being aspirational, it is also critical in a way that I think all good science fiction should be, which is it doesn't pretend that we're going to just magically fix the world's problems through technology. Right. I think that there's uh, a heavy eye of, of criticism to the way the story is, is written. Um, I also think like, and, and this is something I, I don't see talked about that often because Dune is a very popular book, right? So it's not like, it's not like I'm picking some niche book, but I think uh, something that I don't see talked about super often that is perhaps a unique lens for me is like, uh, so I'm transgender. So as a transgender person, uh, reading Dune actually was really fundamental to uh, my, my development because uh, the story of Paul uh, as, as, you know, as the, this kind of, uh, central figure, uh, I felt like has, uh, intentional or not, I have no idea if Frank Herbert intended this, uh, it feels like it has strong, uh, transgender metaphor to it, right? They talk about this idea that, uh, in the story, like Paul is, uh, destined to be the one who can walk the golden path, the one who can see into both, uh, the masculine and feminine, uh, and who can, who can, who can essentially like, uh, see both both sides, uh, which also uh, kind of uh, to me when I was young and and I and I had not yet figured this out about myself. Uh, it really resonated with me immediately. I was reading this book and I was like, oh my god, like this is a hero that I really relate to uh, in a way that I don't relate as strongly to other heroes I was reading. And I and I when I was young, I didn't quite understand why. And then the older I got, like I said, I reread this book every five or six years. The more I read it, the more I was like, oh, I see. Like I I know why I relate to this character and. Um, Again, I don't know if that was intentional from Frank Herbert. I kind of suspect it probably wasn't. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was something that was just kind of mulling around in, in his uh, creative conception, but it still feels very real to me. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's a really uh, powerful component to the story. Um, and of course, also to preempt the question, like, yeah, I'm super excited for the movie, uh, yeah. you know, which is coming out soon. So yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's one of those movies that, you know, no want to miss. <laughs> yeah, I think comes. everybody's going to see Dune for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hey, do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? Um, yeah, I, I don't think I have like a specific story. Um, from uh, you know, like a, from like when I was young or something like that. Um, but I will share uh like some thoughts that I had somewhat recently. Uh, so like I uh, I grew up in a family uh. Of, of people who love motorcycles. Like we just, there's always been motorcycles in my life. Uh, and uh, recently uh, I 
got back into it myself. Uh, so I you know, got a, bought a new motorcycle, have been practicing and like riding again. And, um, and has, it's been a really, uh, a good way to get out and get my, get my head out from, from behind the screen. Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day as I was out riding, uh, which is like one of the pieces of advice that you, uh, are given, or that is a good piece of advice for, for, for riding, uh, when you're, especially when you're on the road, but really anywhere is, uh, look, uh, or, uh, don't look down basically, which is, uh, be confident in where you are, be confident in where the bike is and look where you want to go. Uh, which is like that advice is usually given to people when they're talking about like turning or just like instability, right? Like if the bike is going over a bunch of bumps, don't look down. Cause if you look down, you're going to lose control of the bike. If the, if you're in a high wind, don't look down. You're going to lose control of the bike. Like if you're, if you're going around a turn, don't look to the inside of the turn. You're going to lose control of the bike. Always be confident in the bike. Like, and in you, like you're upright, the bike is upright. You're fine. Look where you want to go. And uh, cause if you look where you want to go, that's where you're going to go. And I think about that and like, I know this is like super corny, but like, I was thinking about that the other day and I was like, that's a, that's a, that's a life metaphor, right? Like it's, mm. it's this idea of like, I, I try to, uh, think about everything in my life that way, which is like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about or worrying about where I am right now. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about or worrying about where role is right now. For example, like I, I have a lot of faith. Uh, I have a lot of faith in the community that we are building this with. Uh, I have a lot of faith in our partners and I have a lot of faith in our team who are all amazing and who all believe in what we're doing. And I just think like, as long as we keep our eyes pointed where we want to go and we have faith and confidence in where we are now, the metaphorical bike will stay upright and we will be fine and we will get there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, again, like, I know that can sound really corny, like this whole, like, oh, it's like motorcycle Zen, like motorcycle wisdom, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, uh, I just think that like, that's one of those things where it, it stuck for me in a certain part of my brain. And, uh, and it has, it has kind of come back into my work. Yeah, it works. It definitely does. Uh, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, it was great, Logan. I, I, I still want to ask you a question. Like if, if there's some people in the audience, like who want to, you know, ask something from you, you know, advice on founder stuff, like what is the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, I'm my, my best public presence is Twitter. Um, so you can find me at Twitter, uh, at Logan Dwight, uh, just my name. Uh, I'm relatively responsive there. Like my, uh, I'll respond to DMS. I'll respond to replies and messages. Uh, that has kind of become my, my public social outlet. Um, so yeah, if anybody wants to chat, whether it's games or tech or venture, or just want to talk about Dune and motorcycles, like yeah. that's where you'll find me. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> hey, hey, thanks, Logan. This was so much fun. Uh, really, really great chatting with you. And uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. This has been uh, this has been fantastic. I uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, thank bye you. Bye-bye. Right, bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out. And I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. 
Bye-bye.